You guys did awesome. Um, if you have a Bible, you can go to Mark 11 is where we're going to be today. Mark 11 is where we'll start. We will not stay there for very long, but we will start there. A uh, couple things I want you to know. We're going to get ready to uh, receive the offering here in just a minute. As always, if you're not comfortable passing, that's fine. Just let it pass. There is a box in the back that you can give to as well. You can you can set up online giving if you would like. Um, before we receive the offering, a couple things that are coming up that I want you to know about. November 1st, next Sunday, next Sunday night is going to be uh, our worship night. We're going to do a night of worship and prayer. And here's here's kind of the way we're framing this. I'm going to teach about the Beatitudes next week, about some of the values of the kingdom of God and the things that I think as, as followers of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, we are created to long for. And then Sunday night, we're going to come back and we're going to actually stand in the gap and pray and intercede and long for those things as our country heads into a major week of election and change and whatever chaos and anxiety and fear and anger is coming, we want to be the people of Christ that are intersecting, intercessing for that. And so next Sunday night at 6.30, we're going to be worshiping together uh, and and praying in that space. I would invite, I would love for you to come, love for you to bring someone with you, um, and let that be just a special night. We had a great time at our last worship night, so we want to kind of make this a regular thing. And then the following Sunday, November 8th, there's several things you need to know about. November 8th, so two weeks from now, can you believe it's November? It's crazy, isn't it? Um, November 8th, we are going to have our Orphan Sunday. That is our once a year we, we get together and we just kind of dig in deep to what's going on with our um, friends, our, our family of believers over in Ethiopia. We also want to talk about how we can meet needs here, especially as we head into the Christmas season. Uh, I know church has been different this year, but we are still called to be the church. And so we're going to be doing that, talking about what that looks like um, November 8th. Also November 8th, uh, that evening, Josh is leading a uh, online Q&A around table with the series that his, he's been teaching online uh, called Leading with a Limp. And so if you're interested, you can go on Facebook, you can find this event. Uh, we'll, we'll send it out in an email as well. Um, but this is just an opportunity to explore God's calling in your life. And Josh has done a great job teaching this series and is going to be opening that up, connecting with some folks that, that have been attending online. And so if you're interested in being a part of that, it's going to be a great conversation. And then the last thing, November 8th, this is, this is a big Sunday. Uh, this is the, the, the major thing we want you to know. We are actually shifting worship times, okay? So starting November 8th, we are not going to meet at 11.30 a.m. We are going to meet at 10.30 a.m., okay? we The band is excited, apparently. Um, what, what we have found is that the Presbyterians are moving their time back to 9 a.m., and that's going to open the door for us to be at 10.30. What our hope is, our prayer is, is that as, as people are starting to feel more comfortable hopefully being back out in gatherings like this, that we can have a space at 10.30, and then if we need to, we can introduce a second service to maintain social distancing, keep things open in that regard. So 10.30 a.m., everybody say it out loud, 10.30 a.m., Three of you and the rest of you mumbled. Awesome. Well done. Uh, 10.30 a.m. November 8th. That is going to be one service. That's Orphan Sunday. Okay? So let me pray for our offering. We'll receive that, and we are going to jump right in today. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you receive the gifts that are given? God, I know many have given throughout the week online. Um, we're, we're thankful for that, and we pray that you would receive those gifts, these gifts, as that offering to you, Lord, that it's more than just uh, a, a practice, more than just a habit, but it is given out of the, the authenticity of our heart seeking God to give back to you. And so would you receive these gifts? Would you sustain us as a church? Lord, we pray for the other churches, God, that I know are struggling in this season, Father, where so many are are home and and so much disconnection is happening. We pray for our brothers and sisters of Christ all around the world, Lord, that you would sustain your church as you always have. 
God, use these gifts for your kingdom, for your glory. Make your name known and your name famous among those who don't yet know it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, Mark 11 is where we're going to be today. If you've been here the past few weeks, you know that we have been in this series that I called Citizens, the Politics of Jesus and the Kingdom of God. And so I've been asking you a question each week as we are in this political season and what it looks like to be uh, filtering our faith, filtering our um, walk with Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the reality is you just get to judge us today. That's, that's kind of all your job is. You can just relax. But if you are a follower, of Jesus, we have to be walking through these steps, these conversations politically about the kingdom of God in different ways. And, and so the first week I asked you this question, I said, "Would you? W- will you filter, are you willing to filter your politics through the lens of your faith, or are you going to make your faith fit your politics? That's a key question that we need to be asking, and, and we need to be honest about it. And then two weeks ago I asked you, w- will you let your political positions be led by love? Right? Can we always keep in mind that love for the person beside us, even as we hold political convictions, political positions? And then last week I asked you, will you give up your desire for a king that you would elect to surrender to the king who elected you? And so I, I got to tell you, here, here's what happened last week. For those of you that have been here, maybe you felt this. I don't know. But I walked out of church last week feeling like I didn't really connect the message I gave. Like it kind of went, like that's kind of what I felt like last week. And I, I kind of just, I, and one of those Sundays, those, those happen. And to be honest, like for about seven months, I haven't felt like I've really connected. Part of it was making videos, not knowing if anyone was going to watch. And then part of it is everybody that I usually connect with through your faces. I can't see your faces, right? So that's that's been like my last seven months. But but last week, it was kind of just like, eh. And so Sunday afternoon, we went up to my parents' house and had dinner with them. And, and Beck walks in. And first thing she says about church is, I don't even know if I'm supposed to vote now. And I was like, yep, didn't connect at all. <laughs> so I missed the mark last Sunday. Today, though, I'm going to try to do better. And just to clear up last week, you should vote. I, I think that matters. Like, that is, that's a good thing to practice. So in the scriptures, there are these portraits of Jesus in the gospels, in the stories of his life, where the politics of his day deeply overlap with his ministry. And I know we, we've talked about this in this series. Many people think, well, your church, you shouldn't talk about politics. But if you read the gospels and don't see the political world of Jesus coming into play and how he interacts with it, you're actually misreading the scriptures because it was all over. In fact, for the Jewish people in the first century, the thought of separating religion and politics would have been unheard of. It just didn't happen. It all integrated. I I want you to see a few of these today because so much of what Jesus did was deeply connected to politics and it was complex just like today. I want to show you a few of these. Look at Mark 11. Um, Verse 8 is where we'll start. But you need to know this, this passage, Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem before it will lead him to his death on the cross and eventually his resurrection. And as he enters, we see this Palm Sunday tradition that we talk about during the Easter season. Here's what it says in verse 8. Many people spread their cloaks on the 
the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now I want you to understand, we read this passage with all of our uh, United States, American versions of Christianity and Easter in our minds. That's what we approach this passage with. And so we've got all of our Easter traditions, right? Nice dresses, waving the palm branches if you grew up in a traditional church, understanding this was Palm Sunday. What this context really was about, though, was a political moment in Jesus' life. That this passage was actually taking place as a fulfillment of the prophecy back in Zechariah 9, hundreds of years earlier, that that the, the prophet said to Jerusalem, to Israel, Rejoice greatly, your king comes to you righteous, victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this donkey, and there are people gathered around going, Hosanna! Right? And I want to tell you, they didn't know the Hillsong version of Hosanna. This was actually a cry, a word that meant save us. It was a political cry. And they are wanting to anoint Jesus king. Now, we think this is a beautiful moment, and it is, but I want you to understand, in the middle of a Roman empire where Caesar reigns, and Caesar is Lord, there are a pocket of believers, a pocket of people going, no, 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 we need a different king. This is a protest moment. A beautiful, peaceful protest moment. And here's what happens in verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple courts. He walked into the religious place. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, I'm going to show you what happens immediately after this, but I had never caught this till this week, that Jesus walks into the temple after being hailed as the king, and he looks around at the temple, and then he leaves. He goes away from the temple. But check out what happens the next day, verse 15 of Mark 11. Here's what it says. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts again and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now again, this is a religious and political moment all wrapped up in one. My question this week was, why didn't Jesus do this the night before? Why did he walk into the temple, look around, and then leave because it was late in the evening? My sense is because there weren't enough people there. He wanted this to be seen. He wanted to demonstrate to the people who came to a religious setting that, by the way, was all wrapped up. The religious setting was all wrapped up in the financial empire, in the economic system of its day. This is a political moment. Jesus is flipping over the tables. In verse 18, we see what it's going to cost him. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, don't miss this. This is the first example. I'm going to show you a couple more today, but this is political. This is protesting by Jesus done in the way of the kingdom. He was unhinging the religious system of the day. He was walking into the religious epicenter, flipping over the tables and saying, this is not the way it's meant to be. He stepped up to the plate of politics and powerfully demonstrated the face of a kingdom revolution. You cannot read this without seeing the deep intertwining nature of the religion and the the politics of the day. And because of that, these leaders began looking for a way to kill him. It means they were trying to destroy 
their opposition. Does this sound like our political world today at all? I know some of you are like, I don't know, maybe. Mark 5, go back a few chapters. We see another instance of this. Mark 5, verse 15. This says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, I taught this passage over the course of several weeks, several months ago, and the idea here is that Jesus has healed this man who is possessed by many demons, and as he's healed, he's now sitting in his right mind, and the people from the town, now remember, these demons went into a herd of pigs, and the pigs ran off the cliff to their death. And those who had come from the town, it says, verse 16, those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Now, if you remember, when I preached this series, if you were here, the idea here is that the people didn't, they didn't care whether the man had been healed. They cared that their economy had been ruined, Right, Because their economy of the day was the pigs. That was their industry. That was how they made their money. And Jesus, in healing a man possessed with a demon, had done damage to the economy. And so their fixation, the crowd's fixation, was more on money as a way of power rather than the good of all people. Aren't you glad the Bible doesn't really just hit what we deal with today? Are you with me? Mark 12, let's go one more passage. He's asked to leave after the demon. Look at Mark 12. Later they sent, verse 13, verse 13 of Mark 12. Here's what it says. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, these are the religious leaders, to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. That's just nice, right? Isn't that just great? You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And they have a question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay Or shouldn't we? Aren't you glad there's no questions of taxes in our world today? Look at Jesus' answer. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius, the money of their day, and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they said. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. And so we've moved through Mark and we've seen Jesus protesting, flipping over tables in the religious epicenter of their day. And now we see him saying, no, just give the government what is theirs, but give to God what is God's. He seems to, in this moment, be squelching a revolutionary mindset. He says the Jews should submit to the taxes of the government, but give to God what is God's. Now I want to show you this last verse from the book of Philippians, and then I want to unpack a bunch of this. Philippians 3 Verse 20, this is the heart of where this series came from. Here's what Paul says to the church in Philippi. But our citizenship, everybody say citizenship, is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly, eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. See, I think Paul condenses the thinking of his day. For Paul, living as a Jewish man, former Pharisee, former persecutor of those who followed Jesus, who was also a Roman citizen, citizenship meant everything. If you were part of the Roman Empire, if you wanted higher status, you would become a citizen. And Paul is writing to a church, and Paul has all the credentials that the world could look at and say, this is our guy. And Paul writes to the church and says, no, our citizenship is in heaven. Don't ever forget that. 
He says, we have a citizenship in a way that doesn't make sense to this world. And because of that, we eagerly wait for the Savior who will come and will restore us to how we are meant to be. So I want to say to you today, we live with a citizenship in a world that is still being made. I hope you don't miss this. Our citizenship is in a country, a kingdom that is still being made. And because of that, we live with this constant tension of being here, but not being at home. And what that means is that we are remaking a world that God will one day complete. And so the question today is, how do we do this? How do we actually do this? Justin, you've given some great ideas about politics. You've told us how to love those idiots who disagree with us better. It's really nice of you. But how do we actually do this? How do we take political action? How do we determine how we're going to vote? How do we determine what steps to take? And I want to give you some, some principles, and then I want to tell you, from my perspective, biblically, how this works. Here's the principles, and these are quick. I want to walk through these first. There are no prescriptions for easy politics, right? I, I wish I could write a 10-step book of how everybody can be good Christians and unify around the next political election, because it'd be awesome. I can't. There's no prescription. We've talked about that. Here's the second thing, and this is maybe super, maybe, maybe more important. Be wary of leaning too heavily on your preferred crowds, because crowds become mobs. Be really careful. When your citizenship is held in this tension spot, your citizenship is in heaven, be careful of leaning too heavily on your preferred crowd because that crowd can easily become a mob. And the crowd that you follow does not always carry the same citizenship in God's kingdom that we do. They may think, and you may have most things in common, but to go all in, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, to say Jesus would only be Democrat, Jesus would only be Republican, Jesus would only be Libertarian, is really dangerous because we can't co-opt to those things. Be wary of those crowds. Here's the third thing. Be willing to turn over the tables that need to be turned over. Notice that Jesus flips the tables in the religious system. The tables that I think need turned over today are the way that our religious institutions are getting co-opted to the political agendas. We have to be cautious. We have to be willing to carry the prophetic voice. It's fascinating to me that Jesus is willing to stand up to the religious institutions and also submit to the governing authorities. And he walks in that tension. And that is that tension. The last principle here, be willing to submit to the governing authorities over you. Scripture is really clear about this. Paul says this, submit to the governing authorities, for they are of God. You can read the whole book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and it will mess with your mind because there are kings God sets in place who are very corrupt. And we are still called to walk in submission because, as I said at the beginning of this series, we serve a king who will never give up his throne. Amen? He doesn't get voted out of office. He doesn't have term limits. Amen? That's the king that we serve. So how do we do this? Today is um, not an amazing message. I will just say that. It's pretty common sense. But I think sometimes we need common sense. Amen? Like we need some of that. How do, we, how do we actually do this? And again, if you're not a Jesus follower, you're off the hook. You just get to judge and say, you guys stink at this. This is really good. You stink at this. Or if you are a follower of Christ, this is where this becomes super important to you. And I want to say this to you. Everything we do, everything we carry politically, our perception, our opinion, our uh, uh, um, perspectives and, and political policy, the way that we vote, all has to start with this principle that the New Testament calls the law of Christ. 
right? The law of Christ, for those who follow Jesus, the law of Christ is our marching orders. Now, Paul introduced this phrase in the scripture, the law of Christ. Paul writes about the law of Christ. I'm going to show you a couple examples of this. And the law of Christ is actually Paul's shorthand for what Jesus said were the most important commandments in all of scripture. Now, remember, if you grew up Jewish, you had 613 commands in the Old Testament that you were supposed to follow. That's a bunch of rules, right? And Jesus, when he's asked, teacher, what is the most important command? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, Jesus takes 613 commands, sums it up in two. Paul shortens it and says, follow the law of Christ. Love one another as Jesus loved you. And by this, Paul says, everyone will know that you love one another. If you love God and you love each other, the world's going to know that you love one another. So Paul takes this idea, and if you were to read all of Paul's writings in the New Testament, you would see that he pushes it through to all of his letters. Let me give you an example of this. 1 Corinthians 9, look at verse 19. We'll have this on the screen. I know I'm jumping around today. Here's what Paul says. Though I am free and belong to no one. Now, I preached through 1 Corinthians 9 a couple weeks ago, but Paul says, I'm free. I don't belong to anyone. Though I'm free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Here's what Paul's saying here. He says, I live in the freedom of Christ, but I will make myself a slave so that I can serve and reach with the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as many people as possible. He says, I will do anything short of sin, to reach those who are lost. I'll do whatever it takes. And then he goes on to verse 21. To, so to those not having the law, now when he says law, he's talking about Torah, the first five books of the scripture, there's 613 commands. To those not having the Torah, I became like one of those not having the law. And then he says this important thing, though I am not free from the law of God, but am under, check it out, the law of Christ. That's what we're held to. That's where it starts for us is everything we do, everything we think, every way we vote politically built, first of all, Jesus followers, from the law of Christ, from our love for one another. Galatians 6.2, Paul says the same thing. He says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, when you carry each other's burdens, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I think we could say it this way. When the concerns of others concern you, you are acting on the law of Christ. When you build your platforms, build your policy views, build your political opinions from love for each other, that's where it starts. That's the law of Christ. Now, let me show you this. The law of Christ, if we start there, should then create something called an informed conscience. Okay? The law of Christ should create an informed conscience. Check this out. Jesus walks in the temple. He sees what's going on, and his conscience is disturbed by what he sees. He's bothered. He's irritated at the corruption of the religious system. Every one of us, when we build on the law of Christ, when we start with love for each other, our conscience will then be informed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so there are things that will disturb us, things that will irritate us, things that will convict us, that start to draw into our political perspectives. Now, understand this. This should happen individually, but it should also happen collectively. It should happen for us as the church See, Jesus left heaven, right? So we should leave our comfort zones. We are called to step into the places that disturb us. So uh, according to Jesus, I think we could say this, what's best for people, that's what's best. 
take that out of any political realm. What's best for people is best, amen? Like, could we agree with that? And it does play in to our politics. Now, I want to say this to you, and I want, I want you to understand, because we've come a long way from this, the church used to lead the way in this. In fact, Western culture was shaped by the church's informed conscience for a long time. Let me let me give you examples of this. It was it used to be used to be several several hundred years ago. It used to be self evident self evident. People used to believe that people owning people, slavery, was okay. That's what people thought. That 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 was an okay thing. Slavery was just the way things went. It was not considered to be a moral issue. In fact, in the 4th century BC, Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, and if you were a philosopher, your job was to tell people how things worked, how all of life went together. Aristotle said this, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient from the hour of their birth. Now watch what he says. Some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. It was self-evident. This is what the, the, the general consensus was of the culture. Slavery is, is the way that the world should work. But when we get to the 4th century AD, St. Augustine, the great Christian saint, said slavery is the result of sin. And the church began to lead the way in calling for and ending this horrible thing. Now, obviously, still corruption happened, but the informed conscience of St. Augustine and the people of Christ began to shift culture in the way of the kingdom, the law of Christ. Another example. It was self-evident for a long time that infanticide, I have trouble with that word, allowing children that you did not want to die, what they call exposure, was good for society. This is what cultures used to believe. There were certain laws where babies were required to die. So if you had a daughter that you didn't want, you left them on the street. And and, in the Greek culture, the fates, right, the gods, the fates would decide whether they lived or died. Now, Christians, those who followed Jesus, disagreed from the very beginning. And they condemned exposure and fanticide. Christians would rescue and they would take care of these children, setting up the first orphanages. Now, why did they do this? Can I just tell you the truth? The Old Testament and the New Testament had no specific verses that said, don't kill your babies by leaving them in the street. But they had an informed conscience because of the law of Christ. Do you see how this works? Love required it. Love for God, love for others required it while see and it came from understanding who Jesus is because while we were still sinners like babies left on the side of the road Christ gave his life for us and as the followers of Christ began to act began to be informed by their conscience functioning under the law of Christ as Christianity took root in 318 AD Constantine declared exposure of children a crime And now it becomes a conscience issue. Why? Because the law of Christ took root throughout the culture. The emperor Valentinian made exposure a capital crime. If you left a child to die, you could be sentenced to death. See, the faith of the people of Jesus affected the entire empire rather than the empire co-opting the faith for its own agenda. Are you with me? Three of you, awesome. How about the rest of you? Are you with me? Okay. When the law of Christ, I think we can say it this way. When the law of Christ informs the conscience of a community, a village, a country, things will change. 
And friends, this is why the church is so important. Because we are to be the salt. We are to be the light to shape the conscience of the nation. Now listen, what I'm not preaching is that everybody who doesn't follow Jesus should act like they do. This is where we misinterpret this. A lot of times, oh, I can't believe those pagans act like pagans. What do you expect? Right? Why would we expect them to act like they know Jesus? It's so important. And, and, and when we start with these things, the law of Christ, the informed conscience, on these things, we have to be united as believers in Jesus. You can go back and read John 17. I didn't have time to preach this sermon in this series, but John 17, Jesus' prayer is all about, Father, may they be one as you and I are one so that the world may know. Right? Let the church be one as God and Jesus are one so that the world may know. We have to be united in these things. So let me just say this to you. Don't be in bed with the political parties and the candidates that come and go. Be informed by the law of Christ and let that lead your conscience in the way that you act. And this takes us to the third level of our decisions, our, our votes, our policies. Here, here's what it is. Knowledge and wisdom. I know these are revolutionary ideas today. Knowledge and and wisdom. Now, you know what I know about dogs? I have a dog. You know what I know about dogs? My dog does not learn from generation to generation. Are you with me? Like, there will never be a third generation dog that was like, yeah, my grandfather told me if I peed on the carpet, I get hit with a newspaper. Like, I, I learned along the way. That doesn't happen among dogs. But humanity, every generation, hopefully becomes smarter than the last. We gain more knowledge, more wisdom. And I, and I want to say this to you. This is a sensitive subject today. But we add the knowledge to the law of Christ, to the informed conscience. We add the knowledge of science, psychology, and the wisdom of how our world works and the way we are made. Those are not antithesis things to the faith. They actually live together. This is why Paul says, all things are yours. He's not saying everything's true. No, not everything is true. But I'm not scared to pick up a biology textbook because it informs my faith. It can grow in my faith. And because of the spirit of Christ, I can discern truth from error. That's the way this world works. So, and, and let me say it with this. If, I hope this makes sense. I don't know if it will or not. If someone comes to you and says, where do babies come from, right? Here's what I know about you if you're a parent, right? If, if you're an adult with any reasonable maturity. Some of you are like, where? Where do they come from, right? I know that in your answer, in your response, you will accommodate your answer to the capacity of the person asking the question. Are you with me? So what I mean by that is when a four-year-old four comes and asks, where do babies come from? We don't lie to them, but we accommodate to their capacity. If you're a 15-year-old, you should know already, but I will have a different answer for you than a four-year-old. Okay? We, because of knowledge and wisdom, we accommodate to someone's capacity. Now, your heavenly father is the same way. Your heavenly father accommodates to the capacity of his people. And so when we read Genesis, we see an ancient, ancient pre-science, no warm shower, no Tylenol group of people receiving the word of God. That's the way that it's written. Then when Jesus comes, we see new teachings Paul develops these, the, the, these theologies throughout. So every generation receives more knowledge, more insight. And, and as Christians, and friends, this is a tension point today. If you haven't heard these arguments, you're not paying attention. But as Christians, I don't think we should ever resist science and discovery. 
I don't think we should be afraid of that because our faith is not tethered to the interpretation of a text, but rather to an event, the resurrection of Jesus. That's where my faith stands. We don't need to get into a spitting battle with science. We're wasting our time. That's why I know this. I know this. None of you call me when you're sick. Right? You might, you might call, hey, can you pray for us? But you don't stop there. You call the doctor, right? You call the doctor because you believe that to be true. Once upon a time, people called the priest. I bet they got paid better, right? But no longer. Now we call the people of knowledge and wisdom. And, and, and what I want you to see here is the law of Christ, the informed conscience, the knowledge and wisdom come together to form the final part of this, which is our policy, our platform, and our legislation. Now, let, let me show you this. The law of Christ, love one another as God has loved you. Love God, love your neighbor, informs our conscience. It allows us to see the things that disturb us, should irritate us, through knowledge and wisdom then. By the way, can I just throw this caveat out? One news source that agrees with you all the time, that is not a broad spectrum of knowledge and wisdom. Everybody got what I'm saying? Okay, all right, well, let's move on. Policy, platform, have I offended sufficiently? Policy, platform, and legislation is informed by all those things. Now, most things we can stay unified in, but let me say this. When it comes to policy and platform, there will always be some disagreement among Christians. And the reason we will disagree here, and this is where we have work to do, this is where we as a church have work to do. The disagreement comes because of this. I'm going to show you this principle, and then we're going, to, we're going to start to wind down. Here's the principle of why disagreement exists. Because, and I know this to be true, you know this to be true, where you stand depends on where you sit. Where you stand depends on where you sit. This is actually called Miles Law. Let me, let me, let me explain this to you. Our cultural context, the place where you sit, got those backwards. Place where you sit is what that should say. Our cultural context determines our perspective. It determines the place where you stand. This is true for all of us, and this is why. Now, hang with me here. This is why most of you, most of you, don't see any conflict between your faith and your politics, because where you stand depends on where you sit. This is why you don't see any conflict between your faith and politics. And you are absolutely loving this series because you have friends who need to hear it. Amen? This is why you're Republican. Because your faith makes sense to all those things. Where you stand depends on where you sit. It's why you're Democrat. But I got, I got really good news for you. It's going to feel like bad news, but you've got blind spots. You've got blind spots. Your political views, they weren't shaped to recognize that where you stand depends on where you sit. But this, and don't miss this, church, this is what it means to be mature. And don't we need more maturity today? Like, so, so we could say this, stop being fearful. Stop using fear to convince us, to convince yourself that your blind spots aren't blind. Now, I'm not arguing that we all get along. I'm not saying, well, don't even vote, right? I'm saying we have to understand our perspective. There's room for disagreement, but love has to be at the center of the people of Jesus. We can disagree. We can debate richly, but we have to be people of love because the reality is our political views are shaped by a variety of things. Where we sit shapes our political views. They're shaped by where we live. 
They're shaped by how we were raised. They're shaped by where we were educated. They're shaped by if we were educated. They're shaped by what we've been told, what we've seen, what we've experienced, and what we've seen others experience. See, the question is, what if we were able to step back and see things differently? Where you stand depends on where you sit. And recognizing this allows us to open our hands and allows us to open our minds. It allows us to open our hearts. But I've got a caution for you. You need to be aware. You need to hear this. Beware, because when you start down this road, you may change some of what you think and some of what you believe. And you may get stretched, and you may suddenly go, my easy answers are not so easy anymore. And friends, that's the kingdom of God. So I, I want to look at this one more time. I'm going to show you really quickly. You've got the law of Christ that informs your conscience and then you add to that the knowledge and wisdom to build the policy, the platform, the legislation that you care about. And, and, and that gives us a way forward. Now, this is like the most common sense part of this message. I wish I could say I wrote this, but I didn't. Here's, here's what it is. What do we do moving forward? Three things, very simply, as we close. We listen. We learn to listen. If where we stand depends on where we sit, we learn to listen to people with different experiences. Right? Those, those who don't experience the world the way that you do, you need to hear from those people. And friends, can, can I just tell you, your social media is not filled with those people. Your social media is more and more and more being crafted by people that already agree with you. It's the way the, the algorithms worked work. I watched a documentary, and it taught me this, right? Like, that's what happens. But we need different perspectives in our lives. We need to practice curiosity. We need to listen. Then we need to learn. I, I want to say to you, don't fear, Christians. We are tethered to an event. Nothing that happens in our world is going to unhinge and take Jesus back into the grave because resurrection is eternal. We need to become a, a student and not just a, a critic. I love this phrase. This was actually said by an atheist. I love this phrase. Pay attention to the frontiers of your own ignorance. Isn't that great? Pay attention to the frontiers of your own ignorance. Some of you, you are amazing critics. You remind me of those old guys on the Muppets that sat up in the balcony and just talked smack all day long, right? Like, you're great critics. But some of you mute, you need to, you, like, you're just so good at it. Your family knows you're good at it. Some of you just mute the TV because you don't need a commentator. You've got it. They're like, we got it, Dad. We know what you think. Just turn it back up, right? Would you pause and become a student? Because if you don't, you're going to discount everything that doesn't fit perfectly in your current flawed worldview. And when you quit learning something, something bad happens on the inside of us. Listen, if you're a Democrat, Republicans are not crazy. If you're a Republican, Democrats are not crazy. Nobody's crazy. They just sit in a different place, and they see the world in a different way. And as long as you're spouting off, I don't know how anybody could believe that. You're actually confessing something about you. You don't know. You don't understand, especially in the body of Christ. See, everybody's behavior makes perfect sense to them. Everybody's response, viewpoint, politics makes perfect sense to them. Republicans, Democrats know, know that they're just like you. They, they're taking a stand based on where they sit. We have to learn, listen, and learn. And then finally, very last, we have to love don't ever, ever, ever burn a relationship over a political view. It's not worth it. Don't let 
some relationship that matters in the kingdom of God be sacrificed? You say, well, they started the fire. Don't start it on your end. The you beside you is more precious to God than your potentially flawed view. Because while you were both still sinners, while crazy uncle whoever that you're going to hang out with at Thanksgiving and you just pray that your candidate wins so you don't have to listen to crazy uncle whoever. Are you with me? While they were still sinners, Christ died for you. And the question, the band can come. Will this really work? Our world is nuts right now. Is this, is this really have the potential to work? Let me just say this to you. Once upon a time, there were a handful of believers who gave to Caesar what was Caesar's and gave to God what was God's. They gave to God their lives. And the empire died. Every Caesar that ever lived died. And the kingdom of God lives on. 2,000, more than 2,000 years later, the kingdom of God lives on. So disagree politically. Go for it. But love unconditionally. And pray for unity. And don't miss next week as we talk about the culture and the kingdom values of God's people. Let's pray together.